You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. In her 30-plus year career as an author, Laura Davis has written seven nonfiction books that have changed people's lives. The Courage to Heal paved the way for hundreds of thousands to heal from the trauma of sexual abuse. Becoming the parent you want to be helps parents develop a vision for the families they want to create. And I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, The Road from Estrangement to Reconciliation teaches the skills of reconciliation and peace building to the world, one relationship at a time. Laura's groundbreaking books have been translated into 11 languages and sold more than 2 million copies. Her new memoir, The Burning Light of Two Stars, tells the story of Laura's dramatic and tumultuous relationship with her mother, Tem, from the time of Laura's birth until her mother's death. This story about two souls who just wouldn't quit each other provides a no-holds-barred peek at the real Laura, the woman behind the teacher, the facilitator, and author. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Laura Davis. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I you know, I... Um, this, I'm very intrigued. First of all, I'm intrigued by the title of, of the memoir, The Burning Light of Two Stars. Um, but I want to hold off on, on that because uh, I, I just want to know where does, you know, I always like to say uncorking a story is uncorking the stories behind the stories. So where, where does this story begin, Laura? Where, do, where, does, where does this story begin? You know, it, it begins really, it begins, this, the, the book itself begins with my birth and so does this story. And um my mother and I had a very, uh, we had a pretty good relationship when I was a young child, basically, until I got to the point of developing my own self and asserting myself, you know, pretty much in adolescence, which is typical. And I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and I was a flower child. So I made a lot of non-traditional choices. You know, I um, I joined a cult. I had a guru. Um I quit college three times. I, 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 I was not the daughter my mother would have wanted. And she had a strong need for control and I had a strong need to rebel. So, you know, we started from, that was like our starting point. And then as I moved into my twenties, we had a lot of um, moments where the, the things that I decided to do with my life for her felt like mortal injuries. You know, I came out to her as a lesbian when I was 23 um, and she said, you have confirmed my worst fear about you. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, you know, so she was she was she was an actor and she was a very dramatic person. Um, and and so there was a lot of push pull between us and she took everything I did personally. And I was really just trying to find my way and discover who I was. And she really had a hard time with allowing me to do that. Um, out of, out of curiosity, was it a, a very religious household you were born into? Or? No, no, okay. it wasn't. Um, my, my mother actually grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. My father was also Jewish, but basically an agnostic and hated religion. Um, so no, it was, it was a very watered down kind of cultural 
Judaism. So no, I would not say it was um, religious at all. Okay. Um, moral, you know, my parents took me, for instance, to hear Martin Luther King give his I have a dream speech. And uh, when John Kennedy was killed, was assassinated, I was seven years old. And they took us to the funeral. Well, this was in New Jersey. They took us, we drove all night to go to Washington, D.C. for the funeral. And they just had a really strong sense of wanting their children to be part of history. And that's like one of the best legacies um, from my childhood. There was a, a sense of that you're committed to the world and you're you're meant to help the world. So that was good. But there was also a real push to um, have a very kind of narrow idea of what was permissible, what was acceptable. Um, the, the biggest rift that happened with my mother happened in my 20s. Um, and it was it was a terrible rift. And it was over um, the fact that I remembered that my grandfather, her father, had uh, sexually abused me when I was a little girl. Mm -hmm. And when I remembered that, uh, because I had really suppressed it, I guess, as a way to cope, she absolutely, my mother, freaked out, um, assumed I was making it up, um, said I'd been brainwashed. And it really brought us into this very deep estrangement. Um, and we spent... 20 years really trying to find our way back towards each other. And I thought we had reconciled. Um, and then when my mother got old, um, when she was almost 80 years old, she called one day. She was living in New Jersey. I was living out in California. And she called one day to announce, not to ask, but to announce that she was moving to my town for the rest of her life. And suddenly I was faced with um, being her caregiver. And so you know, she arrived, she was developing dementia and becoming her caregiver and her decline, it just pushed every button I had. So this, this reconciliation that I thought we had achieved began to fall apart. And we no longer had this 3000 mile buffer between us. Um, and so, you know, caring for her, it brought up all the unresolved issues from the past that had kind of been papered over but I had promised to take care of her. So that's the dilemma that I was addressing and that I wrote about is, could I find it in my heart to love her unconditionally? Mm -hmm. And despite everything in our past, was I capable of becoming the daughter she needed me to be? And, you know, is it possible to become a caregiver for a parent who has betrayed you in the past? That was, the, that was my journey in life and that's the journey <clears throat> I documented. In other words, you were asking really small questions, Laura. Yeah, just little ones. <laughs> just tiny, just tiny, tiny little ones. questions of no consequence. Well, I mean, what's that like, though? I mean, hearing from your mother that she's not not asking, hey, can I come and, and live close to you or live with you, but more of a almost a demand. Um, just And knowing the relationship you had with her historically, what, what was going through your head at that point in time? Well, I absolutely panicked. I mean, I just panicked. I, you know, I, I pretty much almost fell to the floor. You know, I like collapsed into a chair and I was hyperventilating and in my mind was just like, oh my God, no, this can't happen. And so part of me was freaking out, but there was also another part that really had a deep longing to see if it was possible for us to actually heal this relationship the rest of the way. So there really, there were like two parts of me that were conflicted, had very different feelings about her imminent arrival. Um, I, I wanted to become that daughter that she needed. And I knew there was like a huge mountain to climb to get there. 
Well, let's talk about how you approached climbing that mountain. I mean, did, did, did this happen in stages? And, and, and if so, like when she first came out, like, what was that? What was that like? I mean, what was that? What were those early experiences like when your mom came out here, out to New Jersey? She came to California. She came to California and um, she did not live with me, which was, I think, really fortunate for both of us. And I, you know, that's a matter of privilege. She, she was a social worker. Um, her whole career and had come from an incredibly poor background. So she, she wasn't a wealthy person, but she was incredibly frugal. So by the time she was in her older age, she had saved enough money to basically pay her own way. You know, when ultimately I had to move her into assisted living, she had the funds to pay for it. And so I'd never had to really face like millions of people do moving her into my house um, so I, I, I'm very grateful that that happened because I just don't know if I could have handled that level of proximity. And, you know, like many millions of people, I had two teenage children at the time. I was running a business. So I was in the ultimate sandwich generation, just feeling so squeezed from every direction with people's needs. And, you know, at first when she came, um, she panicked, she freaked out. You know, I think the early stages of dementia for anyone who has watched a loved one go through this. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of intense emotions and quick changes. And for me, those emotional states were really triggering because it just reminded me of the far past when our relationship had been at its worst. So in a way, her arrival triggered a second war between us. And, and that war was over her independence. That's That's the field on which it got played out because um, you know, at first she she did quite well for maybe a year or two, um, established a life for herself, but then gradually as her dementia increased, you know, she started not showing up for things and her friends would come to pick her up and she wouldn't know what day it was. And, you know, finally her life that she had formed and her friendship started to fall apart yeah. and she became more anxious and isolated um, and it was very, very difficult. And, you know, she was calling me 10 or 12 times a day and I would be running over there. And um, it was so that period was very, very difficult. And yet I was committed to her, but I was in a way I was just going through the motions. And I actually would like to read something to you that sure, really please. kind of talks about the dilemma I faced because I was going through the steps of being a good daughter, you know, and her friends who were in their 80s would say, oh, I wish I had a daughter like you. But I knew that in reality, even though I was going through the proper motions of taking care of her, I was still, there was like a coldness inside of me, you know, like I really resisted. I never confided in her. She didn't really know about my life except for the externals. Um, and one day I went over, I had been gone um, teaching a writing retreat for about a week. And I came home and she was, you know, had been waiting, kind of everything had piled up till I got back. And I went over and I was fixing things like her printer and, you know, taking care of the little things I could fix. Um, and she confronted me about my coldness. And I went home and I wrote this. Three decades earlier, I had erected an impenetrable wall between us, a fortress with narrow slits so I could watch her approach. I ensured that my defenses were prepared anytime she came near me. I always had an escape plan. It's true we later reconciled, and the fact that we were able to create a functional relationship was a miracle. 
but it wasn't an intimate miracle because I never took down my wall. Oh, I taught myself to be kind to her in a fake it till you make it sort of way, but I still held her at bay. My wall just got subtler. It wasn't permeable. It was hard and opaque and there was no door. We only met in the antechamber, the common room where guests are received. Only my polished self was on display, my masked self, and only in the antechamber. Mom never saw my inner sanctum, and I never saw hers. I got as close as I could within the constraints I had established, but closed is closed, and a closed heart is a lonely one. The price I paid to keep my mother out, at first with withdrawal, later with an armed fortress, and finally with the polite rules of detente, was love. The pure, unfettered love I longed for, the pure, unfettered love she craved. That day in her kitchen when I couldn't comfort her, I had to face it. My mother was still a stranger to me, with tentacles of need I was loath to touch. I wanted to be more than kind, to do more than merely what was right. I wanted to love my mother just once, freely and with the relief of a lost, exhausted child, beyond words and beyond all pretense. I wanted to lay my head on a place that was safe just once before it was too late. That's very powerful. Did you read that to your mother? Uh, no. She died before I wrote that. Okay. Um, I mean, it, you know, you're, the, this image of the wall um, that comes up, uh, it seems like you, you try to tear it down, but in its place was maybe an invisible fence or something. I mean, there was always, whatever that tension was between you, didn't, didn't in, in terms of the passage you just read anyway, didn't seem to, the structure, the metaphorical structure might be gone, but the, the, the root causes were still there. Right. This is, you know, this is pretty early in the story. This was, you yeah. know, not that long after she arrived. And so, you know, there were another maybe five years until she died. And, and that's the journey that I really tried to portray both what what caused us to have this rift that felt like I, I you know, at one point I just said, I will never speak to her again. You know, I really thought we would never speak again to being at her deathbed and wanting to be there. And you know, there are so many millions of people who are experiencing rifts with their families. And, you know, sometimes it's based on a betrayal and it doesn't have to be as big a betrayal as the one I experienced. Even, you know, smaller disagreements can really fester. And um, if they get papered over, they could really lead to these, these terrible breaches that happen in families and it's happening so much more now. And uh, so I, I, I really told this story because I wanted to give an example of uh, basically an intractable situation where there was able to be healing and resolution, because I, I feel like if it was possible for the two of us, it could be possible in so many other circumstances. You know, it strikes me the, um, the Indigo Girls just played in my town last weekend, and I, I didn't get a chance. We, we had a dinner party to go to, so I, I didn't go to see them or else I, I would have. But, the, you know, the song Closer to Fine, which is like their marquee song, um, kind of all about, you know, where we go searching for answers to the questions we have. And, and I'm curious, like, where did you go to search for the answers to the questions you had? And what, what was that journey like for you? Answers to which questions in particular? Well, maybe the, the, the questions about sort of um, 
you know, your relationship with your mother and why it was so tumultuous. Um, I, I imagine it didn't start with the, the sexual abuse that you, you, um, you know, had at, 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 um, at, at her father's, um, you know, as a result of, of her father, but, you know, what it was, you know, were there, were there questions you were, you were looking to answer in terms of, you know, where, where your relationship with your mother broke down? I mean, you mentioned that it was, it was pretty, it was good up until you started to have your own, you know, kind of come into your own sort of adulthood, maybe, but. When I was a pliant child, it was good. <laughs> I was a good daughter. Um, I, you know, I didn't really ask myself that too much. I mean, this this comes to the title of the book that you were asking about, yeah. the, bur the Burning Light of Two Stars. You know, that was not the original title. For, for many, this took me 10 years to write, and for a long time I called it Wholehearted. Um, and when I took it to a publisher, the first thing they said is, you know, you're probably going to have to change that title. And And I'd worked with enough publishers to know that they understand a lot more about marketing a book than I do. And so I was open to that. Um, and when I Googled wholehearted, it was a term, you know, it, it's certainly one that Brene Brown has made very popular. And there's a number of books with that title. And it just was kind of something that had been used. And um, they also said, you know, you don't want to give away the ending of this story uh, when people just pick it up. You, you want it to be, can these two people ever find their way back to each other? You don't want the resolution plastered on the cover. So I agreed. And I actually had, um, I crowdsourced the title. Um, I I put it up on Facebook, and I'm part of a, a big online group of memoir writers that has you know several thousand members. And I posted it there, and people started sending in hundreds of suggestions for titles. It was pretty overwhelming, and I had I had to come up with a new title like in two weeks' time. Um, and there were a lot of really kind of wild titles, and some of them were much more on the nose, so I rejected those and. You know, I would like one for a day and not like another one. Um, and finally, like at the very last minute, um, this woman, Karen Bartholomew, she had been a, a writing student of mine. And, and ironically, she was a visiting nurse and she had been my mother's visiting nurse. So she knew Temi. And she sent me an email the morning I was meeting with the publisher and said, because I had said something that there's a lot of images of fire in the book. And so something to do with heat would be good. And she said, well, what about the burning light of two stars? And I thought it was a perfect title because that my mother and I were both very intense personalities. So, you know, the fact that we were at war is there was not really any surprise. You know, we both were these two stars, you know, that just were in opposition to each other. And, you know, I think my mother was the sun and she expected me to be an orbit around her. And I just am not an orbiting around someone else kind of person. And so you know, I think it was natural that we would have conflict. I think what I had to do over the course of many years is move beyond the small conflict of the two of us, like these two personalities that were butting heads and despite the terrible things that had happened between us. And I, I had to almost like zoom up to like in altitude so that I could see the bigger picture of her whole life and her generation um, and what she had been taught about being a woman and what had been possible in her family of origin. Um, and I was, you know, mentioned that I have a, a Jewish background and there's so much trauma historically being passed down through that lineage. I, I just started seeing her in a different way from a much broader perspective and 
instead of just seeing her as my nemesis, I began to have so much more compassion for her. And, you know, I think the story behind the story for me is that for many years, I focused on her negative traits and I magnified them in my mind and in how I spoke about her and her good qualities were like water. They just dripped away. And so that was really a big part of what I brought to this estranged relationship was that I villainized her. And I, I guess I did it for protection because I felt I needed to protect myself from her. But as I healed more um, and as we worked on this reconciliation over years, I began to find so many things about her that I could admire. And was, so, yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask, I mean, did you find a way to build empathy for your mother or feel empathy for your mother? Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. It didn't mean I, I didn't like the choices she had or I, I, you know, I was I was saying to someone this morning that there's a way that I had, a I have a lot of courage. Um, you know, I mean, my first book was called The Courage to Heal. And it, it's, I, I feel like I am a courageous person and I have faced some really difficult things in my life and I have a lot of personal strength. And I believe that I gained those qualities in part because of my mother, you know, like because of who she is and how she raised me. And yet, when it came to this issue of this abuse in the family, I had the courage and strength to face it, and she did not. And you know, some of that is that I grew up in a different era uh, where these things were starting to be talked about. And it, they're just, I just started to have more compassion for the fact that there was a line she could not cross, you know, where she had to choose her dead father over her living daughter, which, which you know, when she did it at first was just the ultimate betrayal. But, you know, 20, 30 years later, I could look at that with much more compassion and just see that she tried. She really, really tried. She, she like came right up to the edge and she just could not cross it. And um, I, I accepted that about her. I, I had to just accept that we had to rebuild a relationship that was not based on this huge issue that was just like this giant piece of heard in the middle of the room between us you know and we we agreed to disagree at one point you know that we're just not going to try to convince each other i'm not going to try to convince her that i'm right she was not going to try to convince me that she was right and we started focusing on things we did have in common because there were some like small things like we both love the movies so we would start to go to the movies together or we both love the theater uh, we like to cook together so we started doing some of those things. And I think the fact that I created grandchildren for her also really made a huge difference. Um, when my son was born and he's now 28, um, it really made a big difference. I think that really motivated both of us to work a lot harder on our reconciliation because I had witnessed her being a really good grandmother to my niece and I wanted her to be Eli's grandmother. And she desperately wanted to be in his life. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was the, the, and I think this is not uncommon. You know, I think when many people become parents, they begin to think about their own parents differently because suddenly the reality of what it means to become a parent becomes so much more real. Um, so so that, that helped a lot. The other thing that my mother did that I, I really respect her for is that we lived 3,000 miles apart. This is way before the end of her life. This is maybe 20 years before that, when my son was a baby. She began coming out to California for a couple of months 
every winter. You know, she lived in New Jersey. She wanted to get away from the bitter winters. And she started coming to Santa Cruz. She would rent her own apartment and kind of live her own life. But she put herself in proximity to us. And it enabled us to begin to build some new experiences that were positive instead of just all we had to talk about was like the crap from the past. And I think that was courageous of her. I was not very welcoming at first. I was, you know, brutally ambivalent. Um, but she kept doing it for, she did it for like nine years. Mm-hmm. Every winter she would come. And we gradually started we- reweaving um, a connection. Now, were you, I mean, completely out of touch when, when things were bad? Were you completely out of touch or, or did you remain in touch somehow over those more tumultuous years? That's, that's a great question, because if you had asked me that years ago, I would have said, we didn't speak for seven years. But uh, when my mother died, there was this huge cache of letters that I found, and it was all the letters I had ever written to her. It was all the letters she had ever written to me, and it was first drafts of all the letters she never sent. Oh, wow. And I had kept the same. Like I had a total written record from my side. And when I put these two sets of letters together, there was probably a foot thick of handwritten letters. I mean, you know, we have lost the art of writing letters. This was pre-internet, pre-email, pre-texting. And my mother, you know, I am a writer by profession and my mother was a good writer. I mean, she didn't identify that way, but she was a damn good writer. And these letters were so... Um, it was such a confrontation for me to read them because what I saw was that we had never stopped corresponding during that seven-year period when we couldn't bear to be in the same room or could barely speak to each other without just like a big explosion happening. But we kept that thread of letters going. And I think the reason is probably when you write a letter, you're not really confronted in real time with the person. You get to digest what they've said. You get to think about what you want to say. And the letters... Um, made me realize that the story I had been telling about my mother was just a story. Mm. I mean, it was the truth, but it was only part of the truth. And suddenly here was physical evidence that I had been leaning into this story um, of how bad things were. And actually in those letters, there were a lot of bitter, angry letters, but there were lots of loving, generous, kind letters. So it was... It was really um, a confrontation with myself. In, in the book, I say uh, a truth teller can only tell as much of the truth as she's willing to face at a given time. Well, what, what were some of the harder truths that you had to face about yourself? Or I assume you uncovered some truths about yourself <laughs> during this process. Well, I think, I think for me, the hardest one was that the way that I pigeonholed her as the villain. And it's not that she didn't do some villainous things or some things where I, she really genuinely did betray me and, and did some awful things, but that wasn't all of who she was. And so I think that's what I had to face was, was the way I, I think I described before that the, the good qualities, I either didn't see them or I minimized them or I blocked them out. And I just like shown a spotlight on every mistake she ever made. And then I held on to it. So that's what I had to face. Um, and that, that was difficult. I mean, I, I understand that I, it, it grew from needing to protect myself, but, um, you know, I, I think as we mature, as we get older, we're able to see 
much more complexity in situations. And when I was young, this was a black and white situation, mm. um, right or wrong, good or bad. You know, um, you know, when I was writing the book, it, one reason it took me 10 years is that it was really important to me that there'd be no villains and no heroes in the story. So, you know, at first in some of the early renditions of it, I had people read it and they just talk about kind of how awful my mother was. I knew that would never do. Um, and I just kept working on it and working on it until we both were these human, flawed, imperfect, loving, broken, whole characters, you know. And uh, when I, I knew the book was done, when people started saying, you know, on this page, I hated your mother and I loved you. And on this page, I loved you and hated your mother. And and that's when I thought, OK, the book is done. You yeah. know, it's 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 finished because. I was able to finally make us both human. I mean, you, you do take a big risk when you write about family. Um, uh, yes, you do. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, but how do you, how do you manage that risk? And, and have you had any fallout from, from, you know, writing about family? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the first book courage to heal led to, but that really cemented the estrangement with my mother and, her whole side of the family uh, didn't speak to me for years. I mean, I stopped being invited to the family occasions or getting the birth announcements. And, you know, I was really cut off. I had to create a separate family, um, mostly of my friends. Uh, my father was always really supportive. My brother was kind of always playing in the middle, trying to placate everyone, which drove me insane. Um, but I had very few people in my um, birth, my um, blood family that supported me during those years. It was kind of like, even if it did happen, just get over it. You know, like, why are you making such a big deal about something that happened in the past? Um, so I had to create an alternative family. Um, now I forgot your original question. Oh, risks about writing. Um, oh yeah, writing about family. So yeah, so I did lose my family at that point and it took you know, many, many years to kind of work my way back into uh, relationship with those relatives. You know, as I began mending the relationship with my mother, you know, I was welcomed back into the family fold. I, you know, those relationships never became intimate per se, but they were cordial and we could, you know, have a holiday together or something like that. Um, and so when it came time to write this book, I think another reason it took so long and, and I, the whole time I was writing it, I was just saying, you know, I don't have to publish this. And I had to create this little protective bubble around myself because for one, I, I didn't know if I was capable in terms of the skill it would take to create a really compelling page turner story. Um, but, but a lot of it was, I was really concerned about those relatives that had cast me out the first time. I mean, a lot of them have died. My mother's whole generation has died, but I have cousins and we all shared that same grandfather and they all say it never happened. And I have been quiet about it for decades now. You know, I, I, I wrote The Courage to Heal. I was on the road. I was touring around talking about sexual abuse for years. But then, you know, another 20 years, 25 years went by when I really was not focused on it and I wasn't bringing it up. And so to write this book, which had to touch back into that material to explain kind of the, the backstory of my mother and I, our, our relationship, I was really scared about how these relatives would react. And, you know, 30 years ago or 35 years ago, my attitude was, you know, I'm telling the truth, they're in denial, so too bad. 
you know, but now I'm a lot older and I have a lot of compassion for the people in my family who have been made public or had stories about their family made public when they are very private people. And so I think it's it's quite challenging um, and just really difficult to have a writer in the family. And And now I can say that to them. And, you know, when I finally signed a contract for this book and decided to publish it, I I wrote a letter to those, that little pod of relatives, and I basically told them what I was doing. I wasn't asking permission. And I apologized, you know, and I basically said, you know, I'm still the same person who took care of Tammy at the end of her life. I'm still your same cousin who, you know, whatever other qualities they like. And I said, and I'm an author and I have not published anything in, in 19 years, in part because I felt there were all these topics that were forbidden to me. And this story just insisted on being told. Yeah. And I'm really sorry for any <clears throat> difficult feelings or fallout this causes, you know, so I, and I sent that off. And so, you know, and then closer in, um, you know, in this book is my mother who's died. Uh, my brother is a big character, um, my spouse, Karen, and our three children. And so all the people who are actually characters in the book, they were involved since the beginning and they all gave me their blessing and their permission. Um, and I think it's very generous of them because they're all private people. You know, I'm the one who's choosing to be public. So I think, and they they all read the book a couple of times and they critiqued it and they, my son gave me, you know, fact-checked a bunch of things because his memory is much better than mine, my daughter the same. Um, and I, I feel very grateful to them for allowing me to write about them uh, because, you know, I think it's very challenging to have, a, especially a memoirist as your spouse. Oh, sure. <laughs> really <laughs> difficult. Um, so I, I really appreciate it. I think they understand that this is who I am. I'm an author and that I, I happen to be the kind of author who tells, uh, writes about my life. You know, I've written other things, but I mean, this is, this, these themes have been themes I've been visiting in my whole body of work for decades now. And um, maybe this is the last time and I'm going to write something like this. Maybe I'm going to move on and write a novel next. <laughs> now I'm curious, you know, by, by the, at the end of Temi's life, um, did you feel like you, you had a full reconciliation with her? Uh, I felt when she died, I felt really at peace. I, I felt like I had shown up the way I wanted to, that I, I felt I could feel proud of what I had done. Um, and I felt finished, like it felt clean between us. Mm. Um, and yet, would I say that I was completely reconciled? I, I don't know. I mean, I think people will have to read the story and, and determine that for themselves. You know, not everything can be healed. Yeah. Um, not everything can be resolved. And I think as I get older, I understand that more, that we go as far as we could go and that that healing is something we do over the course of a lifetime and that you know the things i experienced that were traumatic in my early life both brought me strengths that i draw on today and certain vulnerabilities and i think there was a certain damage in that relationship with my mother could it be healed ultimately no and i think you know some of that was when you're in a relationship with someone with dementia who was declining you're in a relationship with someone who's not the same person they were before. So, you know, it was like, almost like I had a different mother uh, those last years. It, she wasn't the same person. Um, 
you know, I, I write a lot about that. And I think it's a, it's a really common dilemma for so many people. You're, you're really in a, a state of preemptory grieving uh, because you're letting go of that person little by little by little as they lose their capacity and their faculties. Yeah, no, I, I, I can, I can empathize with that as my mother has, uh, <clears throat> is, um, you know, she's 88 and, uh, it's 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 an understatement to say that her memory is not what it used to be, um, although I don't want to put any labels on it because um, the doctor hasn't put any labels on it. So who am I to do that? You know, I'm curious, though, and, you know, because I know so many people do struggle with um, estrangement with loved ones. What are the keys or the essential elements that make reconciliation possible? You have to give up being right. I think that's, you know, that's like the number one core thing. You, you have to give up being right. And, you know, as I described with my mother, we had to kind of change the playing field so that we weren't just focused on the thing we didn't have in common anymore. Um, and I just think about all the people right now who are dealing with so many estrangements. I mean, it's a, it's a, common problem and now it's just so exacerbated by the climate we're living in in our country there are so many rifts in families and you know i think you have to figure out is there any way we could still connect you know maybe we can't connect on what we believe to be true maybe you know we're at odds about something really big but do we you know there's do we still like both like sports together or do we still enjoy you know going fishing together or is there some way we can connect that is not about this thing that seems like or is an intractable difference between us. So I think part of it is you can't just focus on the difference because you're just going to end up more estranged. And, you know, there are, I think it's important to say there are some relationships that are worth walking away from. You know, I don't think everything can be reconciled with the other person. Sometimes the person has a, a mental illness. Sometimes they're violent. Sometimes they're hostile sometimes you know there could be a, they shut the door on you um so there there are reasons sometimes where it's just like you need to set a boundary and that's it but i think even in those situations it's possible to heal on the inside so that you can still wish that person well even though you're you're setting a a boundary there's a a woman i interviewed a number of years ago and and she had come from a a family with uh, two violent alcoholics and uh, she had been sexually abused as a child and then uh, she let her parents take care of her children their grandchildren assuming well it was just me that they did this to and then they went ahead and abused her children and so she was never going to see them again I mean it was there was no way that she was going to ever have them in her life and she said for many years she had nothing to do with them but she said as she got further along in her own process of healing, she said she began to feel or think of them with compassion because she realized that to be so broken and so bitter and so shut down that you would do something like that, that, that they must be really miserable people and that they were living with that 24 seven. And she had been able to go on and build a separate life. And the way she described it, she said, you know, Laura, she said, I closed, the door but I left the porch light on and I, I just that that stayed with me for so many years because she found a way to have compassion for them but from afar so I think even in situations that truly are impossible we still can get to a place where 
the rift is not eating us up on the inside. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think there's, there's different types of reconciliation and they're not all going to look like some kind of like movie scene with this deathbed reconciliation where everything, you know, the, the violins are playing and everything is resolved. But even if we can resolve things to a certain degree, it's better. You know, even if you can come up with, for instance, rules of engagement, like you, you all want to be at the same wedding together, but you're not speaking to each other. And then maybe you could bring in a mediator or someone with a lot of skills who can help you come up with rules. Like someone might say, you know, I'll come to the wedding, but I'm not sitting at a table with dad, you know, or I'm not posing for any family pictures, you know, or these are the circumstances in which you can see your grandchildren. Um, and, and sometimes those kind of mediated um, solutions, it, it's better than nothing. You know, it's not the dream of, you know, everyone healing and it being all kumbaya, but it still um, can be workable. And it means that everyone can go to that wedding without choking on their chicken, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we're I, uh, wrapping up here. Um, the Burning Light of Two Stars is available, will be available for sale on November 9th. Um, but I imagine that there are some listeners out there who are asking themselves, where can I learn more about The Burning Light of Two, two Stars? And perhaps where could I even read some excerpts from it? So do you have any uh, information or do you have a, a place for them to go, Laura? Sure. I have uh, posted the first five chapters of the book on my website, and people can read that for free. Um, and then if you like it, there's you know places you could order it at all your usual booksellers. Um, both the audiobook, the ebook, um, and the paperback. Um, and you can access those chapters at www.lauradavis.net slash chapters. So that's www.lauradavis.net slash chapters. Um, and, you know, I hope you enjoy them. Yeah, it's very generous to put the first five chapters up there. Um, I do have a I do have a final question, and I and I you mentioned it um, early on. You had joined a cult. Um, <laughs> I just I can't let it go. I need to know a little bit more about what this cult was and what you were looking for in the cult. Uh, I I was I was 15 years old, so I was young. I was in this from 15 to 21, so it was really by the time I was 21, I was out of the whole thing. And it was a young guru named Guru Maharaji. And, you know, people who are about my age might remember him. Uh, he, he was the one famous for driving lots of Rolls Royces. Although I think a lot of these gurus have a lot of wealth. Um, and I think, you know, what I was looking for, I was looking for a safe haven. I, you know, my, my father uh, left the family, abandoned the family when I was 14. He moved out to California to become a hippie. He dropped out. Um, took a lot of acid, uh, went to the Esalen Institute and took like human growth workshops and then founded a artist colony in San Francisco. He was a really interesting guy. Um, so he had left, my brother had gone off to college. And so it was just my mother and I in the house and we were really at odds. And I, and she was also grieving because her husband had abandoned her. And it was, this was before divorce was common. So she was, she not only was divorced and dealing with the mess he left behind, she was incredibly ashamed that this terrible thing had happened to her. 
And so she was falling apart. So I felt like I was losing the one parent I had. Um, and I, you know, as a teenager only can do, I blamed her um, for the divorce, even though he was the one who left. And I, I felt like I needed to get away from her, um, but I didn't want to do it by going to college, which is what I was expected to do. And I was like a straight A student uh, because I was too rebellious for that. And so uh, my big brother got involved with this guru and he came for a visit on his way to India. And um, I was just so taken with his friends and they were like singing with guitars in the living room and they were talking about love and light and and they didn't treat me like a little kid who was in the way and so i got really interested in following my big brother to this guru and so that's what i did um, and i i ended up um, living in an ashram um, and it, you know it was definitely had a lot of aspects of a cult but it also was a protective environment you know yeah. i was this was the <clears throat> like around 1970 um the early 70s and it was kind of the why don't we do it in the road generation and i think I, it was the, the alternative of just being kind of out in the culture was too scary for me um and i think maybe because of my history as a survivor of sexual abuse i was not inclined towards you know free love which was very common and so i got to be celibate which felt safe um, and i i got to live with some really interesting people uh, and I, I did that for, uh, you know, several years. And then I, I just outgrew it. You know, I just, I wanted to have other things in my life. And so I left. So I, I wouldn't say it was, I think actually it was like a fruitful harbor as opposed to something bad in my life. And it, I have a lot of great stories from that time. It's given me a lot of material over the years. And, and actually, you know, there was a certain aspect of the, the spirituality, meditation, that has really planted a seed in me that has grown throughout my life. Yeah. So I, I have some gratitude for it. Um, and I'm also glad I got out as young as I did so that I could, you know, go on and start building my actual adult life. Sure. Now I know we, we spend so much time talking about your mom. Of course, the book is is really about that relationship, but did you ever wind up having a, a, a relationship with your father as an adult? Yeah, he and I were quite close, actually. Uh, he lived at, he would, I said he went out to San Francisco and I went out to California. So uh, we both were living in San Francisco at the same time and I, we got pretty close. And you know, the thing about my parents, they were, even though he was the one who abandoned me, he was actually the one who supported me through every decision I made, he was behind me. You know, I, I was talking about how my mother reacted when I told her I was a lesbian. My father's reaction was that, we started marching in the gay pride parade together in San Francisco. Um, there was this contingent called PFLAG, which was just starting then, parents and friends of lesbians and gays. It was like the very beginning of that. And we would, every year he would make this giant float out of a stolen shopping cart. And he would, he would take these like the inside of wine boxes, those kind of metal bags, yeah. and he would fill them with helium <laughs> and put them around. And he had, he was a, a musician he had a big conga drum and we would go down market street in san francisco and there would be with this these flags that said you know parents and friends of lesbians and gays and there would be like people lined up six or seven deep along the sidewalks just cheering us with this amazing standing ovation just weeping because you know these were all people whose families had cast them out and yeah. here was my dad marching down the street with me so he was, he was a great guy. You know, he had his, I could, maybe I'll write about him someday. Uh, 
he had a lot of flaws, but he was actually a, a really, really interesting man. And he, he was supportive of me. He, he always had my back. All right. Very good. Well, again, the burning light of two stars will be available on November 9th. And for more information, please go to www.lauradavis.net slash chapters. And you can read the first five chapters for free. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. It's been a great to talk to you.